Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer, co-host, engineer, call screener, Mr. Christopher Morales. Are you in the house today? I am in the house, absolutely ready to go. All right. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 if you want to call in to speak to us or our guests. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our website, ocgworks.org. That's O-C-G-W-O-R-K-S dot O-R-G, and click on the O-C-G Radio Live button. Or you can also go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash O-C-G Radio. You don't have to call in on the call-in line and listen to the show unless that's your only means, and then by all means, do so. <laughs> you can send us a note via stork uh, or donkey or mule, whatever you have access to. If you see us... Walking down the street in Redwood City, going to grab a cup of coffee, you can give us a question that we'll answer for you on air. Carry a pigeon. <laughs> any, yeah, exactly. Any way you want to communicate with us, we are more than happy to do that with you. All right, let's go to our uh, recap real quick. So last week, our topic was 100% figurative, infants and intellectuals, yes. and the whether or not or the difficulties they have uh, in treatment and whether or not they ultimately succeed in their recovery. We left that discussion with the position that the infant 
has a higher chance of success, and both are challenging characters to deal with. Would you agree, Mr. Producer? Absolutely. Okay. And if you want to know what we're talking about, check the show out. Go. Just go <laughs> it's to, in the archives. In the archives, or go to iTunes and just type in Roach on Recovery, and it'll all pop up, and you can listen to that show, and you can know exactly what we mean by infants and intellectuals. Or call us and ask. Uh, you can also email us. Uh, we are more than happy to take questions via email. If you are so fortunate to have a powerful phone number in your phone that is a direct contact to the host, I'm sure he uh, <laughs> is willing and able to take text messages, uh, as am I. Um, you know, We really do appreciate the participation we have been getting, but we want to continue to expound upon it and uh, be here to answer any questions that any of you guys may have. So, Really, we'd like to reiterate any way you can get in contact with us, whether it's following us on Facebook or liking us on Facebook, uh, through the website, through OCG. We, we've been getting a lot of likes on Facebook, by yeah. the way. I just want to let you know that. That's awesome, so, yeah. Thank you through, very much. Um, through OCG's website, through Blog Talk's website, uh, you can text me, you can uh, you can call us, you can, uh, like I said, any, any way that is easiest for you to communicate with us, any means necessary, uh, we definitely love to have your question and field your question on air and be able to discuss anything that you may want to discuss with us. All right. Good stuff. Uh, most importantly, uh, it's seven degrees once again and balmy. <laughs> That's yes. a special nod to my East Coast contingent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, who I'm sure they're still dealing with some snow back there and some uh, frigid temperatures. Hope you guys warm up soon. Coming into We're in March now, so... Remember, this is the time of the year we sometimes get those sneak snowstorms back there, so don't, don't, right, let, don't let your right. guard down. But we're here for you. All right, we got a personal story segment to start off with today. Um, and we're interviewing a gentleman by the name of uh, Ray Mills, who is the executive director of an organization locally to us here in San Mateo County, which has probably one of the greatest names of an organization that I can think of pretty, in terms of what we do. It's pretty darn good. Uh, Voices of Recovery. So I want to welcome to the show Mr. Ray Mills, who I don't know if he was born and raised in Harlem, but I know he spent some time living in Harlem. Is that true, sir? Yes, sir. In the frigid, balmy, seven degrees at times. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, sir, to the uh, Roachon Recovery. Thank you, sir. It's a privilege. I'm honored so, that you gentlemen support the recovery community in such a powerful way. And I'm privileged to be able to take part in your show this afternoon. Thank you. Um, so, Ray, we're going to start off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal story? Okay. You Again, got a story. I'm always, so. I'm always glad to have that opportunity. And I'll kind of start from the beginning. I was born in Florida. I'm number 10 of 12 children. And my older brothers and sisters in the community around me drank alcohol like it was milk. I began drinking at an early age, 12, 13 years old. And from there, I immediately graduated to smoking pot, doing psychedelics, 
And by age 16, I was a full-blown heroin addict. I was fortunate enough to graduate high school with the help of my friends. Age 18, I went to prison for the first time, all drug-related activities. And I got out age 21, and from there, the next 40 years of my life was involved with drugs, alcohol, criminal justice. I took a lot of stabs at recovery in those early days, a lot of hit-and-miss times. And I moved to California from New York in 1989, and I started off on a new road of recovery. But again, I was hitting and missing along the way, and I went to prison in California for the last time in 2001, and I got out in 2006. And from that day to this day, I've been clean and sober. What happened for me was I was at one of the parole pack meetings, and where they usually have different agencies there to talk about their programs of recovery. And the day I was there, there was a gentleman there, Mr. David Lewis, who's the president of Free at Last, and he spoke that day to us in a in a way that I don't think nobody else could do it the way he did it. But mm-hmm. he explained to us how we supported the system, the judges, the public defenders, the police department, how we paid their salary by going in and out of jail. And he challenged us to be our own best commodity for ourselves. At the end of that meeting, I went up to Mr. Lewis and asked him what I needed to do to get in his program. I was on parole at the time. He instructed me to to talk to my parole agent. And I asked him, well, could you talk to him for me? And he clearly told me I had to do my own legwork. And so I Mm -hmm. did talk to the parole agent, got into Free at Last. And in Free at Last, I got a foundation of recovery. I learned how to go to meetings how to work with my sponsor, and to seriously think about having a life of recovery. That's what happened for me in treatment. Mm-hmm. After treatment, I began to volunteer for agencies in East Palo Alto and San Mateo County. Uh, and the local community there supported me 100%. The leadership, uh, the the faith community, supported mm-hmm. me in my walk in my early days. And in 2008, I had met with the leadership of San Mateo County, and they offered me a position at a new facility for mental health that they were doing in East Palo Alto. And we agreed they were going to hire me. And when I went home that night, I, I knew that I hadn't been all the way candid with them I didn't tell them I was still on parole, mm-hmm. and it bothered me. So the next day I went in and I explained that, and they couldn't hire me because county, you know, can't hire you in that situation. Mm-hmm. They still supported me along the way, and in 2008 the opportunity became available for a peer-to-peer recovery community organization, and I was asked by the Director of Behavioral Health Recovery Service at that time, would I like to participate? 
And I said, would I like to participate? <laughs> it was it was like, you know, what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And from that opportunity, Voices of Recovery was born. Again, the support of the community, the support right. of the network in East Palo Alto mm-hmm. kind of undergirded me, me being new to the community, me being new to nonprofits, and supported me along with the leadership in this county. Mm-hmm. That was in 2008, and we grew, opened our first satellite center in 2010. I became a certified rap facilitator at that time. And we eventually, in 2011, seated our board of directors, got our 501c3, and moved into our location where we are today. That's in Belmont, 310 mm-hmm. Harbor Boulevard in Belmont. We also have a satellite center in East Palo Alto mm-hmm. at 1842 Bay Road where mm-hmm. we do recovery support services. And it's almost like paying people to recover. We mm-hmm. meet people, some early on in recovery, and some who've been in recovery for long periods of time, and we train them to be recovery coaches. Right. We, we've we had the opportunity to see a lot of lives turned around through this process of peer to peer. What I mean by that is what makes us peers is our experience. We don't have counselors. We don't have psychologists or therapists on deck here. We're right. all peer-to-peer, and we're part of a national peer-to-peer agency, ARCO, Association of Recovery Community Organizations. Uh, you might be familiar, Arvo, that every three months we have a quarterly celebration of recovery and mm-hmm. Voices of Recovery. And at these events, we have standing room only. We have people just sharing about their successes, whether it be entering into a program, going Mm -hmm. into transition, getting a job, getting new housing, getting dental work done, all the positive things that happens for individuals during this recovery process. There's always uh, leadership from the community there. There's always leadership from the county. And we've just been fortunate to be able to meet people where they are. We have a, a affiliation with the local health clinic in East Palo Alto where we get to provide re- recovery support service to the patients that come to the clinic in need of drug and alcohol services. One of the u- unique things we do is we provide the Wellness Recovery Action Plan work groups. The RAP workshop is our foundational workshop at Voices of Recovery. We're currently doing eight RAP groups a week, some in treatment programs and some open to the community Mm -hmm. in different evenings of the week. And through that process... We've we've been able to convene the recovery community for these celebrations, and 
bridge some partnerships between treatment and peer-to-peer. Mm-hmm. I just like to say that when I first started, you know, I got a lot of resistance from treatment because the dollars have always been so short, you know, for recovery. And uh, treatment providers felt like if they supported us, it was taken from the treatment dollars. Mm-hmm. That has changed. We've, we've built some partnerships and mm-hmm. support with organizations throughout San Mateo County. And I just got to continue to say that the, the support we receive from the leadership of Behavioral Health Recovery Services has provided our infrastructure. Mm-hmm. We work with uh, AB 109 participants returning from jails and prisons to provide recovery support services and wrap groups for them. And we also have a partnership with the Mental Health Total Wellness Division of San Mateo County. And and we've been fortunate, we've been fortunate that we're in the process now of exploring our next satellite center in the north part of San Mateo County. Mm-hmm. Part of our vision is to have centers in all the regions of the county, along with the new county's CSA, Community Service Area Programs, we are providing wrap groups for each CSA area. So I'm excited, Arville, Chris. I'm excited about what's happened in my own personal life. I've been able to rebuild relationships with my family and make some amends. Often when we get in recovery, we think everything is hunky-dory with the people we've hurt and disappointed along the way. But when I go back home to Florida, I'm often reminded of people I've hurt, my brothers and sisters and Mm -hmm. others that I still have to make amends to. And, you know, it's just been a, a tremendous process for me having a relationship with my son today who's 18 years old. He's a mm-hmm. student at De Anza mm-hmm. College, plays football, and uh, he comes from from Gilroy to spend weekends with me in East Palo Alto, and it's the highlight of my life. Uh, I have stepped out of his life at a very early age, and I didn't return into his life until he was nine Mm. And we built a relationship from that time to this mm. time. I'm, I'm in the process of moving, and he was here this weekend, supposedly helping me out, but feels like <laughs> I did all the work, man. <laughs> it feels like I did all the work. But I, I'm excited, man. I'm excited when new people, and we're growing. We got new people coming into each one of our locations every mm-hmm. week, jo- joining our rap groups. And let me ask you. Go ahead. I'm mean, sorry. Let me ask you. You, you had mentioned earlier um, David Lewis. Yes, sir. And I gather that he was a mentor of yours. We do not want to overlook that. So David Lewis. Tell us a bit. David Lewis. After that meeting, that parole meeting, 
he stood there and said, after you guys keep making the judges and everybody rich, and now they're paying me $200 to stand here and talk to y'all. Now, that got my attention. I mm-hmm. sat up in my seat when he said that. When I left free at last, David Lewis, he stepped up in my life. It was a God thing and supported me and mentored me. I started a landscaping business while I was doing volunteer work, and David Lewis had several transitional houses in the East Bay and mm-hmm. in East Palo Alto area. He he gave me the opportunity to take care of all of his lawns as he mentored me and talked to me about recovery and mm-hmm. about building this organization. And once the organization started, David Lewis walked with me through this process up until the day before he was murdered. I was mm-hmm. meeting with him up at Free at Last and um, very, very big influence in my life. And I find myself repeating him with many things he has shared mm-hmm. with me. I today share them with others because I, I asked him one day, I said, man, I got to pay you back, man, for everything you're doing for me. David Lewis looked me in the eye and said, Ray, to pay me back, you got to do what I'm doing for you for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And those are my marching orders today. Right. And I share that with others coming in. But he had a very big influence in my life. I am, uh, he introduced me to his mother early on. And mm-hmm. she has been like my mom since then. Right. I am in close contact with her. She's a great lady, you know, and I say that today because she's dealing with some some physical uh things and and uh we're prayerful for her at this time. And if any of you guys know a word of p- prayer, lift Miss Cora Lewis up in your private time. Not only David Lewis, but there's been other leaders that I do not want to omit in East mm-hmm. Palo Alto. Uh, a lot of females, Dr. Faye McNair, Knox, mm-hmm. Pastor Mary Frazier, Luisa Buara, who's the CEO of the new Ravenswood Health Clinic being built in East Palo Alto, right. and Gloria Garcia. There's been many people along the way who've supported me in this process, insisted that I go back to school and get certain certifications, and uh, just just have nurtured me in this process. And I know uh, I'm not unique in recovery, but I do believe if if we can have that same type support network for men and women coming into recovery today, that the chance of success is much greater. And we try to build that at Voices of Recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, the support component is one of our five key concepts, along with hope, education, personal responsibility, self-advocacy, and support. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you... Uh I know Voices of Recovery, 
provide services for OCG? Yes, sir. Don't forget to mention that. I'm we not. Get the benefit. We get the benefit of your uh, your organization, um, and, and we hope that relationship uh, continues. Um, can I just can say you? that? Sure. Go ahead. Our, our partnership and relationship with OCG has been our foundational pilot with treatment programs. Mm-hmm. We have been able to build relationships with people in treatment starting at OCG. And mm-hmm. while they're still in treatment, we get them engaged and involved with our organization and mm-hmm. we hire them, all of them. And we've mm-hmm. been able to hire two great people from that's turning out to be just great people from OCG. I just wanted to put that in there. Absolutely. And OCG supports us. Uh, yep. All our quarterly celebrations, they're always there to support and participate. And we're looking forward for that relationship to continue to grow. Now, for our East Coast uh, listeners, can you... Can you try and help them visualize uh, and compare? So think of some place that you know of in New York, some area, some neighborhood. So when you mention East Palo Alto, they can get an idea of what you're talking about, the lay of the land like. Yes. The the, the first neighborhood that comes to my mind is 126th Street and Lenox Avenue mm-hmm. back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, early 90s. The influx of drugs in that two-block radius is about the size of East Palo Alto. East Palo Alto is a two-square-mile city mm-hmm. with it's one of the main drug distributing points in the on the peninsula here and mm-hmm. almost everyone that comes through this part of the state comes through East Palo Alto if they're looking to be involved with drugs guns gang activity, and when I think about 126th and Lenox Avenue, I think about the shooting galleries Mm -hmm. uh, where I spent a lot of time sleeping in abandoned buildings uh, and living day-to-day to hustle to get money for my drug habit. And I compared that to East Palo Alto when I first came here. In '93, how powerful the drug climate was, mm-hmm. and the ga- and the violence. I think East Palo Alto was the murder capital of the country mm-hmm. in '92 or something, yep. and it, it was just uh, it reminded me so much of being in Harlem. Mm-hmm. I've also. Uh, uh, had the same lifestyle in in Miami, mm-hmm. over on Second Avenue in Miami, down south in Florida. 
the uh, drug activity uh, around those who know what I'm talking about. Charlie Seymour's restaurant on 8th and 2nd Avenue is like Clark Street in East Palo Alto. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you talked and, a little bit about... Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. It's okay. Go ahead. I was just going to ask you, you talked a little bit about um, what you, you know, what was next for Voices of Recovery in terms of looking at uh, getting a center up north. Um, so for people who don't know, our county's, you know, got a south region, central, north, and then we have the coastal. Yes, sir. And so I'm guessing that you're looking up north, and at some point you might be looking at the coastal region. Yes, sir. We're looking okay. up north because of our established partnerships we have in that area mm-hmm. to to be able to have uh, uh, the space that we need to provide the services. One of our difficulties with the coast has been the coast is very, very spread out. Yep. And it's quite a drive from there to here. Mm-hmm. So it will be to our advantage to establish a center on the coast so participants will have a place in their area to go. They don't have to try to come all the way to Belmont mm-hmm. for to be a part of Voices of Recovery. Right. And uh, we establish our centers with people in that area. Uh, we we hire and train recovery coaches from the area we establish the center. Right. Which which means that when we move to North County, as we network and build there, we will hire men and women in recovery to operate and to facilitate the services at our North County Center. We're kind of excited about that because yep. we're uh, also working with an opportunity to serve medication-assisted treatment folks huh? that that will give us an opportunity to, to do some expanding and some growing. Mm-hmm. All right, Ray, in closing... I want to get to the okay. most important part of our talk. Okay. Ray and I, every now and then, run into each other at the dog park. That's right. I get to see uh, Wheezy. Wheezy, that's my baby. That's his baby. Black Shepherd, correct? Belgium Shepherd. Belgian Shepherd. And... Uh, not not named after uh, Wheezy from uh, the Jeffersons, but uh, I think you said named after one of your sisters or, or an aunt, is it? My niece, my sister's daughter, who was mm-hmm. an airline stewardess on Flight 93 that That's went right. down 9-11. Right. Her name was Louise. Mm-hmm. And when people ask me is she named after the Jeffersons, I get the <laughs> opportunity to talk about my niece, you know, yep. and it's like yep. an honor to my niece mm-hmm. because she was such a great young lady. Uh, she was an airline stewardess, and I got a great dog named after her. Yep, and uh, 
Sometimes Ray and I find ourselves there by ourselves, my dog, yes, his sir. dog, and playing together. But uh, uh, I, I got to let the world know that uh, uh, Wheezy's a, a, she's a tough one. So sometimes Ray has to uh, take her <laughs> take her off, off to, for for private private exercise because uh, she might yes, run sir. the park. Yeah, 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 yeah. She gets a little rambunctious. She might run the park. Ray, I want to uh, thank you very much for being willing to come on and uh, participate in our personal story segment. Was, I am uh, still on it. I'm on it. It was uh, great hearing your, your story and having our listeners hear your story. Great hearing about uh, what Voices of Recovery, uh, again, keep on telling my producer that's a damn great name <laughs> because... Just think about it. You know what we're we're trying to do is be a voice here for yes, recovery, sir. and um, you're actuating that on the ground uh, as a program called Voices of Recovery, and um, so we're just we're just so glad that you can come on and uh, share your story, not only your personal story but your professional story. Man, I thank you. I thank you so much for the privilege to. Uh, just knowing you guys uh, reaching the broader recovery community in this way, I mean, I'm real jazzed about that, man. I'm, I'm and just giving me the opportunity to uh, be a part of it. Uh, I thank you. The honor is mine. Thank you very thank much. You. You're very welcome. And uh, you let me know when that 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 North County opens up, and uh, you'll come back on and talk about it. Absolutely. All right, sir. Thank you. Enjoy your evening. All right. Thank you, Ray. All right. Thank you, you as well. Bye-bye. Bye, Chris. Bye-bye. So his, uh, he's got a beautiful, beautiful uh, dog. Who Is this the one that you were telling me is like the only breed or the only dog you've seen actually be able to keep up with your dog at the park? Like yes. Normally? Yeah. Yes. The shepherd, huh? Yes. So, um... Why don't we take a uh, quick little commercial break? Commercial break, and then we'll come back and start our topic. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. You hear that? What you won't do, you do for love. You'll try anything, but you won't give up. That's the attitude you need to have in recovery. You've got to love or learn to love yourself first. You've got to be willing to try anything that will help you succeed. And most importantly, you can never give up. Visit us at ocgworks.org. OCG, where hope grows. What you won't do, do for love. You tried everything, but you don't give up. In 
Welcome back to Roach on Recovery, 646-564-9909. We just finished wrapping up our personal story segment with Ray Mills, Executive Director of Voices of Recovery. And we're now going to get into our show topic. We're going to spend about 20 minutes? 20, yeah, 20 minutes, yeah, so 20 minutes give or take. Um, <clears throat> there's a reason why I've kind of put this into a segment versus a show. So I've had a number of people ask me to talk on this subject. And talk is not even the right word because there's really not a lot that I can say. I can only speak to my experience in terms of what I've seen over the years. Um, so I titled it Recovery and Illness, The Struggle to Stay Positive. That, was, that wasn't like my original title or my last title. There were so many different titles I could have come up with and and some long-winded titles that I could have come up with. And I I finally realized that, you know, there's not going to really be anything that's going to really capture what really it is that this topic is about. Now, I don't know about you, Chris, in in your experience during treatment, but I know in mine, I've encountered people who have dealt with not only the experience of going through their recovery, but also dealing with chronic illness, severe illness, or terminal illness. Sure. I remember many times of being at Swan Lake as a resident, people coming back from upstate, downstate, coming back upstate, um, and, you know, went down to get tested for various, you know, and back yeah. then, late 80s, you know, HIV, AIDS was just, you know, really exploding onto the scene. Sure. And so because of the lifestyle of, of, of the of the addict, especially the IV drug users, et cetera, um, you know, it was part of the program protocol that we would get people tested for, you know, hepatitis for HIV and other things to see if they were exposed or not. And people would come back upstate and you know and you know talk about you know, finding out that they were HIV positive, you know, and it eventually started the creation of a group. I don't remember the name of the group. I'm going to have to find out through my contacts what the name of that group was because it had a unique name um, for people who found out they were HIV positive. There really wasn't much back then being made of about hep C. Okay. But later on, hep C came, you know, really became prominent on the Big scene. Deal. Um, but HIV was probably the first, uh, in terms of serious illness, um, at that time considered terminal illness to come on the scene and people would, in, that were in recovery had to deal with. And when I say there's not much to talk about in reference to just that narrow little statement, it was more to look at because I'm sitting here as a person who is is not experiencing that wondering how another human being who's just received that news and at that time it was viewed as a death sentence right you know you're going to die we just don't know how long but you're, it's going to happen you know sometime in the near future whether right. it be a year whether it be 5 years it's going to happen well how does a person you know deal with that you know and 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 still pay attention to focus on and stay positive within their recovery. 
I don't know how they did it. Now, I can surmise, I can speculate. Sure. The environment probably played a part. Because we didn't ostracize anyone once we found out that they were HIV positive. Okay. We further, you know, for lack of a better term, further put our arms around them. You know, right, right, Brought right. them in even closer. Let me back that up with this statement. The 1981, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, when AIDS, HIV exploded onto the scene, and I'm only speaking in New York, that's where I lived, um... Obviously, there was a lot of fear, a lot of misinformation, and so on and so forth. And we, and when there's fear, that usually rules the day in terms of knowledge and information, okay, or lack thereof. Yep. I was included in that, meaning that I I had the the viewpoint I was ignorant about the disease, so my viewpoint was based on whatever was out there in the fear F E A R community, okay. Don't touch them. Don't be around them. Don't eat. Don't eat after them. Blah 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 blah. Until I found out, Mister Producer, that my mother, who was a private nurse for forty years, took care of several people in that state. Patients. Yes. Now, what am I going to do at that? Now, once I found that out, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay away from my own mother? No. That's when you now you have to get educated. Right. Okay. And she participated in that education process. Oh, good. Because she's a nurse. She's taking care of them, obviously, and she's touching them and, and, and doing whatever nurses do. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that started the, the flip in my brain in terms of finding out what, what's this really about? What's the true story in terms of this disease and how it's transmitted and et cetera? So it's 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 learning about what my mother was doing is what caused that flip in me. Okay. So by the time I actually went into treatment and went and, and entered into Daytop and started to interact with people who were HIV positive, I had already been educated. So there was no fear, F E A R for me in terms of being around them, giving them a reach out and, and, and what have you, rooming with them and the whole nine yards. Right, okay. okay. For me the the it was about, you know, what, you know, man, I mean, this person just got the news and what are they thinking? What's that like to hear about, to you know, to hear that and, you know, are they are they going to stay or are they just going to say, you know, F it, you know, I mean, what's the, what's the use? I'm going to die anyway, you know, and, you know, just, you know, throw, throw their hands up in the air and just go back out there and I might as well just put a needle in my arm and, you know, the hell with it. Right. Well, for the time that I was there as a client, I mean, as a resident and as a staff person, I didn't witness anyone do that. And I can only attribute that to the um, the caring of the environment that they experienced. No matter what they were feeling um, or thinking, something kept them there. Because, you know, they weren't receiving, quote-unquote, medical care up there. You know, they kept they were making trips down to the city to receive whatever medical care that that they may have needed. Um, you know, the medication that they needed would would come up state, but you know, in terms of seeing the doctor and and whatever else they may need was downstate. So they were they had every opportunity to say, you know, I'm leaving, I'm gone, I don't want to um, deal with this anymore. But they didn't do that. And so to me, I was like, you know, if 
if you can get news like that and still stay positive or stay focused or to at some level stay committed, that really says a lot about not only the person, but it must say something about the environment. And I'm proud, excuse me, to say at least the you know that for the time that I was there as a client and, and a staff person, they were just welcomed more, even more. You know, exactly. knowing yeah. that what they might be going through, and and making sure feeling to try for them and feeling for them, and and making sure that it's not about giving up. And look where and look where we are today. Right, right, you know, right. Look how far we've come in terms of of just that particular um, illness. Um, that now it, you know it's no longer a death sentence because we've come so far medically and so on and so forth. Exactly. That's not to say that there haven't been those who have have passed. But this, what I'm about to say, even speaks even louder to what we're talking about. You know, as time went on, we moved into the middle to the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, I I would hear through the grapevine and through contacts that, hey, so-and-so passed away. Come to find out that, you know, so-and-so was, you know, was HIV positive and ended up dying from age-related illnesses. Had no idea. Right, okay. Yeah. Had no idea. And some of these were staff people that I knew and, and were staff when I was uh, a resident. Had no idea. So that, again, speaks to them. You know what I mean? And then also speaks to the, the environment. Because when I, when I think about some of the names, and I'm going to speak about one in particular, but when I think about some of the names, I'm like, my goodness, the amount of energy that that person had and the amount of uh, vitality that they had about recovery and about treatment and about giving it back, I never know. I didn't know as a resident, didn't know as a staff person. And I'm not saying I was supposed to know. I wasn't supposed to know. Right. But when you hear that they passed because of that, it's like, wow, they, they, they knew. You know what I'm saying? But they had something within them to keep them going and, and staying on path, on track. The one person I am going to mention by name who, who passed away from uh, the AIDS virus, Steve Cunyon. Okay. Steve Cunyon, at, during my time, was the assistant director at Swan Lake. Okay. He was my personal nemesis. All right. Especially when I was a staff trainee. Oh, good. Okay. And I'm sure every person who was a staff, staff trainee had their personal nemesis, um, which is required. You you need to have, you know, so like Eddie Hill may have been my mentor as okay. a staff trainee, but you need to have the person who just, yeah, who you think their only goal is to get under your skin and to be the drill sergeant. Right. type person and to push you out to 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 find out what what you're made of and and what you got and that was him doing things like hiding in the closet while I was doing my haircuts <laughs> to to see to 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 evaluate my technique and so on and so forth and when the haircut was over and you know, you sent you sent out the client that you're giving the haircut to, and then you excuse the residents that were helping you, and you might be doing some paperwork. He pops out of the closet to then give me his evaluation on what he thinks how I did, good, bad, or ugly. He then puts you on a haircut chair when he exactly pops, when he pops out of the closet. That's pretty funny. He's the one who tells you whether or not 
you are detached and not emotionally connected enough to do do your job the way it needs to be done. Sure. And he was, you know, but during this whole time, come, you know, I found this out years later. Steve Cunningham was HIV positive. Mm. Okay. And when I heard that he passed away and, and I was told, you know, what he passed away from, all I could think about was this guy was a marathon runner, a, a maniacal golfer. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, so, he, I mean, it was just all about super athlete. At, super athlete. Okay. Along with being a uh, a royal pain in the in the rear, oh, sure. rear end. Okay. To, and he to, had the energy to do the so. energy to do all that. <laughs> he eventually moved out to Torrance, California, where he, this is where he eventually passed away, out here in California. Okay. Um, but that's just an example of you know the 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 people, and, and again, it it has to be the environment that was created um, from top down. I'm sure the Monsignor had a part part in that. Um, knowing that you know we're dealing with a lot of heroin addicts, and that you know the IV drug use was one of the main ways that this disease was being transmitted. So there were many that found out while they were in treatment. Um, Hep C, which kind of exploded, you know, in the mid '90s. Not that it wasn't existing. Um, but this is more of a, you know, the signs of it uh, just take some take longer to manifest themselves, and you know a lot of people that I know um, have you know been diagnosed with FC and, and gone through the you know the treatment in the 90s, which are extraordinarily different from today. I mean, today people are you know the cutting edge treatment for hepatitis C. People are taking a pill. Whereas back in the day, you know, the treatment was almost related, similar to a person was that was on cancer. You know, they were yeah. taking interferon or whatever, and it, you know, people just struggled with that treatment. Okay. But that's all that there was at that time, you know. But as it, in many things with medicine, you know, they just they progress and things improve, and that's where it is now in terms of the treatment for hepatitis C, but the amount of people, again, IV drug users mostly that come down with it, um, and it's a longer-acting disease, and so usually people are kind of well into their recovery, you know, many, many years into their recovery when it really starts to impact them, um, or if it's an older person who's been, you know, been using a long time and they're, you know, now in their recovery, but I've had many um, people that I've known, especially in Daytop, um, and then you know some some close uh, associates in Daytop, Joe Acevedo, um, who you know comes comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who passed away a few years ago and, and was dealing with hepatitis C for a long time, had a liver transplant. Um, and I remember joking right after his transplant because you know Joe Acevedo can be a pain in the ass also. And I said, Judas Priest, he's, he's now been given another 20 years. 20 years. <laughs> another 20 years to give uh, it to people. To like, give it to us. Um, that's and he, pretty funny. And he's from the old school class of those guys from the 60s. So oh, yeah. um, he, he gives it to you in that in that realm, so to speak. I was lucky enough to be on his good side. I don't even know why. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, from the day I entered my first Phase 4 group till the till the day he told me to graduate, 
Actually, a funny, quick little story. If we have a moment sure. for it, when I was in, when when I went through treatment and then made it to phase four, uh, it was a very big deal if you were going to get to phase four and then smoke cigarettes, mm-hmm. decide that you were going to smoke cigarettes. Mind mm-hmm. you, uh, the host here went through the adult program. I went through the adolescent program. I was seventeen, so the the age played a factor in that. But anyway, the old adage was if you were going to smoke. You had to go to your first phase four group, and you had to tell the group that you're going to smoke cigarettes. You've made the decision to smoke cigarettes. And account to the group, I guess, uh, or be open to the confrontation that would come your way. Mm -hmm. This is kind of par for the course. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, said, okay, well, that's what I'll have to do. So went to group and uh, went ahead and told the group I've made the decision that I'm going to smoke cigarettes. And I'm waiting, right, to go through what everyone else went through. And Joe said, who the hell cares? And I said, well, you know, Joe, I've heard that, you know, if you're going to smoke cigarettes, you have to bring that to the group and be open to their feedback. And he said, you want feedback? He said, <laughs> he said, who in here smokes? Everyone who smoked raised their hand. He said, who in here doesn't smoke? A couple people raised their hand. He said, now you know how they feel. We're moving on. And I'll tell you what, after that group, I got a couple of friends, one that's a good friend of mine to this day. Uh, were giving me such a hard time after group. Like, how the hell did you get out of that so easily when every single one of us got lit up for making the decision to smoke? And Joe just likes you. That was the thing. Joe just likes me, and I was always on his good side for some reason. So <laughs> consider myself fortunate, one of the one of the few that never had to feel his wrath, so to speak. And it was, but and it was it was wrath with love. It was old school right. wrath oh, yeah. with love. Oh, yeah. we, want, we want to make that clear. It was with, with love. And um, there's many people out there um, now that are in recovery or have have been in recovery a very long time and are experiencing, you know, chronic illness, serious illness, even terminal illness. And, you know, what, what, you know, what do you say? You know, I, I, I personally went through that with Joe Acevedo. You know, all the way to his dying day. You know, you know what? How do you? You know, so I mean, he's. You know, it's, it's just joke out there, but I mean, he's like he's recovered. He's he's been, you know, he's it's it's recovery is not the issue for him now. It's about dealing with his health things. But still, how do you support the person through these illnesses that they're going through um, while? Our connection is based on recovery. Right. You right. know what I mean? That that's how our whole connection is based on that. That's very you true. Know? I mean, I, I met Joe Acevedo when I was a resident at Swan Lake, and he was okay. just up there visiting Eddie Hill. Yeah. Okay. You know, they're they're peers. Him and Eddie Hill are okay. peers. Okay. You know, so that's when I first met him, and so here we are, twenty something years later. You know, and and yeah. out, of, out of that connection. Eddie Hill, but when you find yourself in that situation, uh, you you really kind of have to really find out who you are, because ev- everyone's going to find themselves in that situation. There are people out there now who find themselves in a situation where they have a loved one who is in that situation, and you know they themselves might be a person that's in recovery. The loved one may be a person that has gone through recovery. How do I stay positive? How do I keep the people around me positive 
while we all go through this process. That's some deep stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's some deep stuff. It's hard. It's very hard. Um, I don't have the magic answer as to how you do that. Um, all I know is it's it's a it's a process that you go through. You don't stuff your feelings. You talk about them. That's number one. That's very important. You t- you, t- you talk about what the experience feels like. Um, oh, and you talk about it to the person. A lot of people leave that part out. You know, the person still. I mean, Joe. You know, up until his very last days, literally. You know, Joe was talking. Yeah. You know, or holding very fluid and lucid conversations yeah. you know, about everything from A to Z. So, I mean, but you talk to the person, and there's nothing wrong with expressing how you feel uh, in terms of the, the the experience that both of y'all are going through. As they, as the person is going through their illness or sickness, and you're there supporting them through that, um, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a real test for a person. And I know there are people out there going through that. I know there are people out there from Daytop who who have been through that, who are going through that. Um, you know, we've in the Daytop family have lost a lot of people over the years. Um, that's just in the in the nature of being in that family. Um, you know, a lot of the elders, and there's still some still around, still going strong, but we've lost a lot of the elders of of, of the group, and. <clears throat> Start looking at yourself. <laughs> you know, as, as you you start inching into that 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 category. that category yeah. of elder category, you know what I mean. As you're nurturing that 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 group coming behind you, um, you know, you start looking at your own self and not ensuring if you want to look at yourself. <laughs> sure. In that in that way, but I don't know. I don't know, but to the to the people that are out there that are going through this, um, don't think that you're alone. Don't think that there aren't people out there thinking of you, praying for you. Um, and, and by the way, just so no one gets this confused, it's something I, I do need to say. When you are thinking of someone in a positive light or in a light of caring, so to speak, um, that's no different than praying for them. So whatever terminology you want to use, it makes no difference. For me, and I know the, the, the way I think, when, when if I'm thinking of somebody in terms of something they may be going through and trying to send positive energy out to them just through thoughts, you know, okay. um, I may not use the word praying, but that's exactly what we're doing. Sure. You know what I mean? Some may use the word and mean it both figuratively and literally, and some may actually get down on their hands and knees and actually be doing the, you know, the physical act right. in terms of how it looks and so on and so forth. Um, it makes no difference. You could be sitting on the E-train. True. Being harassed by <laughs> passerbyers and, and, and be deep in thought. Uh, holding your wallet in your pocketbook while you're doing it, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. Sleeping with one eye open. 
That's right. You're trained to do that when you come from New York. I had to sleep with one eye open. Okay. So, um, so in your your you, my 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 co-host here is is in the generation right behind me, um, and so probably not too much that you've experienced outside of personal, but in terms of in your peer group, um, because uh, yeah, you guys are to... still kind of young. Right. You know I mean. Right. Yeah. I guess the only thing. Not is... that we're old, but you know. We're, right. We're, right. Our peer group is younger. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Nothing. Nothing like that. And actually, the big one, and it's just kind of big in society today. But the one that we dealt with was diabetes. Right. And so obviously sometimes it's easy to overlook diabetes falling into that category, although it is classified as a chronic progressive terminal illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it it's so common today and there's type one and type two and basically you could know someone of either and they, you know, for all intents and purposes, appear to function just fine. Um, if so they do what they're supposed to if do, they do what they're <laughs> supposed to do. Right. Exactly. Um, so it doesn't have the same feel, although it is in the same class. And that would be the one that, you know, definitely saw some people in the peer group who, who did have diabetes. Yeah. And were dealing in, in your with, peer group? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And um, I remember, you know, one in specific, and, and he may have been the only one throughout my entire time in treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, being, uh, you know, a graduate or even a staff, we've had several since then but who was actually insulin dependent type one and giving himself shots, you know, five, six times a day, Mm -hmm. um, you know, has to, for the most part, cut himself off from dessert on Friday nights Mm -hmm. or whatever, um, which I think at least on the outside, he appeared to be okay with, but we all knew, you know, you're dealing with something there and that's tough. And that's more than what some of us are dealing with because this is extra. And I remember uh, he shared a couple of times, you know, kind of really hating it, sometimes feeling like he hated himself because mm-hmm. of it. And so we knew, um, you know, this is a little different. This yeah. is a unique case. So. And, and I mean, diabetes is, a, is, is you know, my, my sisters are, all, all, most of the women in my family are in medicine in some way, shape, or form. And, right. And it's often characterized as a lifestyle disease. <clears throat> sure. But... Again, someone who's an addict and who hasn't taken care of themselves for 20 years, you know, by the time you get into recovery and you start going to the doctor and finding out, hey, what's up? How am I doing? How am I living? (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) And the doctors say, hey, you know, you got the sugar this doing this and your liver is doing this and this is going this way. And then you find out all these things after 25 years of never seeing a doctor. Right. Um, And... So that's in one category because that's just, you know, not taking care of yourself and, and making bad life choices. And that would be the type yeah. two. And then you have people who, through the, the choices of addiction, you know, of using drugs. Right. You know, so you, if you're, I chose to, you know, use, you know, IV, you know, drugs. And as a result of that, well, when you are in that life, you're not making good decisions. So you're not there with your, your clean kit. To make sure that every right, needle's sure. clean and so on and so forth. No, your mind is, you know, you're not in your right mind and you don't care, you know. And the, the two magic words, F U, you know, or F I rather, and you just do what you do. Unless, of course, you live in Vancouver, which you well know about what they're doing in Vancouver. I've shared that with you, yes, correct? Yes. So, you know, um, 
this is what happens. And same thing, you know, if it's HIV, you know, and, you know, you you make bad decisions when you're in when you're in the life, you know, the addictive the addiction life. So we come out of the life, and then we have to deal with the consequences of those decisions. I would tell my daughters all the time, I said, you know, you got to pay the piper. I said, I only used drugs for six years. Smoked marijuana for two, did cocaine for two, did crack for two, okay? That's six years. That still bothers me every time I say that. And I only did them for six years. Sure. Okay? And when I went into Daytop and I met people who, oh, yeah, 15, 30. 20, 25, 30, I'm looking right. at myself, damn, I only did them for six years and I'm pissed off, okay? Yeah. But I said, you got to, I, I believe there's a, you got to pay the piper. I said, well, what's your, what's your paying the piper, Dad? I said, well, what happens when you smoke marijuana? Well, you know, damages your brain cells. They don't repair themselves. They don't come back. And eventually, you know, it affects your memory. I said, so I know it's going to impact my memory in some way, shape, or form if it hasn't already. And my wife will swear that it has. So <laughs> let's, <laughs> All right. put, let's put that in the check mark right there. Sure, okay. You know what I'm saying? You know, fortunately, I didn't use cocaine that long. But who knows what, you know, two years. I have no idea what repercussion there may be. I didn't smoke crack that long, but two years. Who knows what the repercussions Maybe. Right. Crack cocaine, what's the difference? Both emanate from the same substance. So let's call it four years combined. Right. Who knows what the repercussions would be. Sure. I'm not sitting around watching the clock waiting to find out. You know what I'm saying? I get a physical every two years. And I'm, other than my back, which I injured at Swan Lake, by the way. <laughs> Lawsuits <laughs> come. Um, but so you... You know, you do what you you do what you can, but I, I don't think anyone escapes unscathed, whether it be physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically. But we can recover to the best that we can, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, and spiritually. Okay, and do the best that we can physically, because that's probably the least one that I mean. If the doctor says, hey, guess what? You hadn't seen me in 25 years, and now, I'm sorry, you you're, you have, you got diabetes, and it's so bad, we have to put you on insulin. Right. Okay. That's what you got to do. Right. I'm exhausted on this topic. It's a, it's deep. It's a heavy one, for sure. Because I can, as I'm talking, I can think of so many people that have crossed my path. Right. That have had to deal with this. And I know people who are dealing with it now, um, and it's a, it's a struggle. It's wary. It's um, it's a part of the, you know, part of the deal. Right. It's a part of the deal. Absolutely. So many liver transplants that I've heard of from just in the Daytop family, um, and they're fortunate. I mean, to to. You know what I mean? You know, you know how you, to lucky you are to get a, to get a liver transplant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know what I absolutely. Mean? For several reasons yeah. too. There's a lot that can go wrong there if it goes at all. So, um, the best we can say uh, to our listeners and to those who are out there that are in that struggle is. Um, you know, there's a number of unwritten philosophies, in, at least in, 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 in the OCG program, the Daytop program, that you can constantly live by on a day-to-day basis. But the, it, this sounds simple, but we always 
come back to the basics, the basics of using the tools, okay? And the tools just don't apply when you're in the treatment environment. They apply outside of the treatment environment. And it's basic of talking, sharing, speaking about it, expressing your feelings about it, putting it on other people's shoulders, don't holding the burden just to yourself. Right. You know, so the importance of having people you can talk to um, is very important um, as you go through that. So that's how I'll close on that. That remember to share. That's correct. That's the best thing you can tell someone. I completely agree. Completely agree. All right, let's take our uh, music uh, break. Take a little music break. And then we'll come back around on our our recovery support time. Sounds good. All right, perfect. We do uh, have some people on hold. We see you there, and thank you for being patient with us. We are going to get to you guys on the other side of the break.
Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment and recovery. Our recovery support time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery support time. A time for us to help you. Okay, welcome back to Roach on Recovery. 646-564-9909 is the number. We're going to go into our recovery support time segment. Yes, sir. Okay. All right, let's see. Who's up? Who's up? Who's up? we got Sergio, San Francisco. Sergio, welcome. Welcome. How are you doing today? Good. I have a quick question about uh, recovery. As a matter of fact, it has to do with behavior modification. I was wondering, how many steps are there for someone who is going through behavior modification, and what are the signs of a person who actually has had their behavior modified, and what how their behavior differs from someone who is in a normal society? for a place where there's so many personalities. What? Yeah, would you like to me to repeat it again? Yes, please. Yeah. No, well, my question was, is how many steps are there for someone who is going through behavior modification? And what are the signs of a person who has had their behavior modified? And how does that behavior differ from someone who is living in a normal society in a place where there's so many personalities? When you say the place, you talk about in society. Um, I would or say more like in, the, in 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 the OCG. Okay. All right. In order, I wouldn't say that there are steps in terms of someone changing their behavior. Mm-hmm. I, I don't personally call them steps. But the first thing I'm looking for, before your behavior can change, your attitude must change. The way you think must change. And then by nature, naturally, if you start to think different, your attitude is different, the way you behave will follow. So we know that it's very, very difficult to turn someone's thinking around or get them to shift it, to modify it, to alter it. So that's a, that takes time. And so what we always say, okay, while we're working on that, we want you to, remember we say, you act, act as if. Right. So that's what we say in our program. Right. Act as if. So it's almost like you pretend that you're this, pretend that you're you're wow. you're this way until your attitude comes around to match it. But I will, so I, steps I won't say, but in terms of if there's a process of how change happens, it's attitude first, then 
attitude and thinking, put those two together, and then your behavior follows that. Now, when you step out into society, okay, if you've gone through a treatment program, I used to always tell everyone, if you go through any treatment program properly and then go out into society, okay, you should be miles ahead in terms of your thinking, your awareness, and what have you, than the ordinary person. You should be hypersensitive because you've been in such a closed environment for a period of time. So now you step out into the large society, it's like, wow, I see that, I hear that, I see what's going on over there. You're hypersensitive. Your awareness is sky high. I see. So that would be in terms of when you step out into society, that would be the difference between you and somebody else, that you, your, your awareness should be sky high. Right. Yeah. Attitude, thinking, then behavior. And behavior. Okay. Well, that was my question. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. That was a... Very long. Multi-layered question. Yes, sir. Let's go to... one of the books? Yep. See what we got sent in via right team here. Um, it, we, this one touches on uh, a show that we did not too long ago. This is from Angel. What damage do we do to our kids? It's a two-part question. They all seem to be two-part questions. What damage do we do to our kids, and how can we change that da- the damage that we do to ourselves, but specifically to them from our addiction? It's hard to say in advance or at any moment in time what damage we do to our children as a result of us being in the life. Because it all depends on how long you you were in the life, what age your children were, that they experienced you in the life. So there are many there's a lot of variables. But if we were just to generalize I think in the show that we did when we talked about that about parents who are were addicts and, and getting back into their children's lives, if we were to generalize and they'd say over age seven you know, where a kid is kind of aware of what's really going on around them, um, then, yeah, there's an impact. What that impact is, it's hard to say. We don't know. The only one who really knows is the kid. Sure. Okay? And at some point, that kid is going to tell you. The kid may not tell you when they're young. They may tell you when they become, you know, reach an age of intellectual maturity, and that's different for every kid but let's say when they're 15, 16, or 17, or when they reach a point where they're emotionally able to articulate what they have felt about your lifestyle. So I wouldn't... Children are extremely, extremely resilient, so I wouldn't use the word that you damage them. Um, You do more damage to yourself than you do to them, believe it or not, long-term. They're resilient. They'll bounce back. They will bounce back. It's whether or not we, the adults, bounce back. That's true. And in terms of changing the damage, well, the easiest way to, to 
again, you use the word damage, but the easiest to stop. We we stop. We got we stop using. We got to get into recovery. Yeah, get into stop. treatment. <laughs> yes, yeah, stop. That's it. No, stop. Stop the uh, the madness. I know it's hard, but the answer to that question is simple. Stop. So, all right, let's go to Paige. Hi. Paige, welcome. Hi, welcome. All right, so my question is, um, well, when I talk about my past um, or the trauma that I've been through, I get extremely exhausted. And um, even though I am mentally reliving my trauma, do I should I still keep talking about it even though it's putting me in a bad space and it and it exhausts me? As as difficult as um wary as it may make you, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Now you don't have to, unless you gloss over, for example, let's say you had one particular experience and you're now talking about it. If you are talking about it properly, I have my hands up in quotations, meaning that you're really digging deep into it and you're really sharing about it, you know, mm-hmm. really deep, then you're really talking about it. But if you're just glossing over it and just really, you know, lightly tap dancing on it, so on and so forth, then you're going to find yourself having to keep d- talking about it because you haven't really dug into it. So I yeah, say, that's you know, kind of what I had been doing for a while, talking about it like it happened to somebody else. Mm-hmm. You've been tap but, dancing. Um, yeah, tap dancing. But the last couple times that like I'm seeing psychiatrists now and I'm getting my story out and I did an autobiography, but. And I'm talking about it in, like, group therapy and whatnot. But, like, I get extremely exhausted. I find that I'm really irritable and I can't stand being around people for too long, especially if I get so tired and I just want to go to sleep. And I'm just making it, I'm, like, in treatment. It's just kind of making it hard. That's called the period of vulnerability. Vulnerability, yes. That's what that is. So you just finished sharing. You just finished exposing yourself, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You 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 in your using your words, you've kind of relived it a little bit by sharing deeply about it. But it's a necessary thing. No free lunch. If you want to get past it, you want to get move forward from it, you want to get over that hump of it, you have to give it up. You have to give it up. And so part of the giving it up process is going through what you're going through. But you don't have, but you won't be going through this forever and ever and ever, you know what I'm saying? Once you yeah. go through it and you really do it, it's behind you. And you don't relive okay. it over and over and over again. But you got to you got to really do it right. You don't waste don't waste your time tap dancing because then you, it feels like I'm just doing this over and over and over again. I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not making any movement, no progress here. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. There's no, there's no shortcuts. I don't know what to. No. Yeah. You need to. You need to climb up the hill to start going back down and on the other side. Yeah. There's no, you got to get through it. Period. But 
the the nature of the addict is to really try and find the, the shortcut, trying to find the, yeah, the, easy the easy, way easiest way to deal with it. And um, we, no matter how hard we try, we keep finding out that we're ending we're ending up back in the same spot until you actually go right through. You know, yeah, get it head on. There is no easy, right? So keep tap dancing. You're gonna find yourself going back, and back, and back, and back. Um, let's go back to, here's a popular question from Carlo. Why is it important to not, I repeat, why is it important to not be in a relationship in early recovery? Well, we start, I'll start off my answer with, uh, everybody is different, but generally speaking, and I believe one of our listeners made this crystal, crystal, crystal clear way back, way back in our early days of our show, that that time should really be devoted to you, you and you alone. Once you have finished or reached a point where you have been resurrected, when you have been dealt with, then you have the space mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually to bring another person in, romantically speaking. But until that, I think anybody would advise you. Your best friend should advise you. Your peers should advise you. Your sponsor should advise you. No, this time it really should be about you. Now, there's, there's one exemption. I always have to mention the exemption as a caveat, and that is people who are coming to treatment already married or already in long-term relationships. Oh, yeah, sure. It's, it's real, real, real marriage and real long-term relationships. I'm not talking about, you know, you know, the person yeah, you met before the, you went into jail, yeah, the, you know. The fling. Right. Um, if they're, you know, if they're serious relationships, we're, we want them to, to be successful, so those would be the only exemption and even in those cases we want we want you to understand that it's a, it's all about you first and yes it's selfish but remember we spoke about selfishness not necessarily it's interpreted you know just generally speaking in society when you mention the word selfish it has a negative connotation when in fact think about it differently that more often than not you have to be selfish to take care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't help another person. So that's a different way of looking at it. That's right. It's not always negative to be selfish, and especially when you're going into treatment or you're in recovery or you're trying to get yourself right. It's got to be about you. And so even if you are married and you're in treatment, you have to be able to say to the spouse, I, gotta, I, gotta take, I cannot be a good husband, be a good partner. I can't be there for you until I get myself right. That's right. So I'm going to need to just focus on me. And the other person has to understand that. Same with long-term relationships. All right. Back to the phones. We got Eric. Hello. Eric, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Good. All right. My question for you is uh, I go through some pretty crazy mood swings, right? And, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've done a lot of drugs in my life, and uh, my suspicion is that 
it uh it really the mood swings started heavily uh about the past two years and my question for you is that do you know if that will ever calm down or subside at all with sobriety with long-term sobriety I'm going to give you your answer, but I first have to respond to what you, the way you asked the question. <laughs> you said, my question for you. <laughs> um, so I never interpret the question as from being for me. The question for yeah. Roach on Recovery, yeah. even my co-host can answer the question. Right. All right. I'm sorry. I apologize. No, 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 no. Eric. I love you putting him on the spot like that. All right. We gotta do that every once in a while. Keep the host in check. Right on. Um, (laughs) But to to answer your question, no, it will not always be like that. It will not always be like that. For two reasons. For two reasons. The first reason is because Eric is going to make sure that his thinking is not that it's always going to be like that. Right. His thinking is going to be, you know what? How I feel right now, what I'm experiencing right now, is not how I'm going to feel a couple of months from now, or even a month Mm -hmm. from now. Yeah. We're constantly progressing, progressing through this recovery experience. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I'm well, saying? It's, it's, yeah, yeah, and, and it is kind of an off and on thing too, you know. Um, but uh, I mean, it, it just—it's not—it it gets worse and worse, you know what I mean. And sometimes I can't pull myself out of that funk, you know. And I'm wondering if 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 it's the drugs or is it the fact that I'm in rehab that I'm doing that or what, you know? What drugs uh, did you use? Uh, I used, oh my God, uh, heroin, crack cocaine, methamphetamine. And how long did you use for? Uh, let's see. I used heroin for about three oh, years. All, all total. How how long have you used drugs? How many how how many years? Oh man, um, eight years. Okay. No. And how long did you use methamphetamines for? Uh, not that long, actually. I only used methamphetamines okay. for about a year. So which drug did you use the longest? Heroin. How long and and what and what manner did you use it? Um, I used it for about three years. Um, first I would use oxycotton, and from oxycotton I went to smoking heroin. From smoking it, I went to injecting heroin. So. Okay. Eric, you're in good shape. Why do you say that? (laughs) Because you're in treatment right now, right? Yes. Yes. How long have you been there? Uh, Two months. Okay, so your physical cravings are gone, right? I mean, uh, let me me just clear that up. You're... a start your physical addiction to heroin is now gone. That's right. It is. Okay. So all we're dealing with now are the psychological issues. Yes, of the, which of, is of the addiction. Which is every damn day. 
<laughs> Welcome to sobriety. I know it's 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 not as fun as they make it sound. <laughs> well, but, uh, not yet, not yet. Not, you're two mm-hmm. you're two months in. Yeah, I'm still fresh. I know. You're two months in. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, you know it's just hard to pull through pull through it sometimes because. I don't know. I uh, I still no, get the know. cravings. Yeah, I, I mean, I still get the cravings every day, every minute of the day, you know. Mm-hmm. I know it'll screw my life up if I do it, you know, but I still mm-hmm. get the cravings, and I still get the crazy mood swings, which make me have the cravings even more, mm-hmm. you know. And the well, the only the only thing keeping me here right now is for my parents, not even for myself, you know. And I don't I'm care. hoping that I'm, I'm hoping someday it'll be for myself, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So that's honest. Yeah. yeah. And that's also and that's also okay. For now. Yeah. Yeah. For now it is. For now. Yes. I mean, I don't. I don't think it, it is going to be in the long run. But but what you were telling me is that the mood swings will subside. And my cravings will subside with time, um, and sobriety will get funner <laughs> or better. Well, let me put it this way: <clears throat> you've been using for eight years. Yeah. You you ended up on you so you 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 coasted out of your addiction on on heroin, injecting heroin. Yes. Yes, okay, that's right. Which is a, that's right. Which is a physically addictive drug. Mm-hmm. And you have licked the physical addiction, okay? And now yeah. we're just trying to deal with the psychological aspect of your addiction, so you can yeah. get get into this recovery. Yeah, that's it. Okay. And that's all. Yeah. Right. And you haven't experienced your full gamut of feelings for eight years. No, no, I haven't. And guess what? They're coming now. I know. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. So when you're at this stage, the piece of advice that I give people at this stage is just one thing. What? Is hold on, hold on, and whatever you do, don't leave. Right. Because it is going to pass if you allow it to. Right, right. I mean, do do you tell do you tell me to hold on? Do I just hold on and and wait and see how I feel in a year? Or I mean, oh, Eric, if if you if you held on for a year, you you you're going to be behind this microphone. <laughs> yeah, you're going to yeah. be taking callers from people who are just like you. Right, right. You wouldn't be quote unquote holding on anymore. You you you'd be. You'd be looking back at this period of at that period of time and how difficult it felt, and saying, "Wow, you know, I remember that, but you know what? I I I held on and made it through that that period, right? And thank God I made it through that period because a month later, a month and a half later, it felt totally different. Yeah. I saw the, the the difference. Right. This is that crucial period. I know, know I mean? it is. 
Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. The feelings are overwhelming you, and and everything is coming, you know, it's like coming at you from all different directions because, hey, I'm wide open now. I got nothing to medicate myself with. Yeah. I got people to deal with every day. Yeah. I mean, it's good that I'm in a facility like this, too, because I just feel like an emotional wreck sometimes, you know? It's... I don't even feel that's like why, myself sometimes. It's crazy. That's why I say, if you're fortunate enough to be in a treatment environment yeah. and going through what you're going through, the the only thing that you should focus on is just making sure that I just got to ride it out. Right. One day at a time, I got to ride it out. Right. And I will give you one little secret to What's help that? you ride it out. What's okay. That? If you get deeply, deeply entrenched and involved in the daily living of the treatment environment, okay, Mm -hmm. before you know it, you're going to look up and six months has gone by. Okay. However, I must give you this opposite warning. What's that? If you're, quote, unquote, sitting by the window or staring at the clock, or sitting by the window and staring at the cars going by. Yeah. Okay? You're setting yourself up. I know. I try not to even look at the calendar. I know. I try not to even think about the time either. When you get involved, when you get involved in the daily living activities of the of the treatment environment, the time goes by. Before you know it, you look up and say, my goodness, I mean, it's six months. Mm-hmm. And is that when I'm going to feel the relief, six months, or is it different for everybody? Everybody's different, but generally speaking, you know, when you get to that three-month hump, uh huh. okay, when you get, when you can survive and get to that three-month marker, okay, usually by then, for most people, I'm generalizing here, okay, for most people, okay, They've gotten to a point where, okay, I'm starting to feel better physically, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm able to now deal better with all these feelings that are coming to me and all these other issues or experiences that are now coming to me, you know, that I've kind of medicated over the years, okay? And so you just got to hold on, man. That's just all you got to do. You got to hold on. Okay. All right. Well... Okay. Thank you for your advice. I will keep on keeping on and hold on for dear life. <laughs> All right. Those are lyrics to a song, by the way. <laughs> All right, Eric. All right. Thank you, buddy. One day at a time, my friend. One day at a time. Right on. Right on. All right. Okay. Thank you. You know that you know that period of time that he's in. Oh yeah. That struggle. That That's... two that one month, two month, three month time where that's do or die right there. You're either going to stick it through and then start to slowly realize, hey, coming out good I'm on com- the other yeah, side, I'm coming, or I'm you're coming gonna... around now. I'm coming around now. I'm starting. I'm starting to feel a little bit different. Think a little bit different. But you gotta, you gotta make it to that three month mark. It's true. You gotta now think it. Think of this. We're telling him about making it to that three month mark, and in, there are many states around the country that are only. Allowing for three months of treatment. Oh, right, that's all that's funded. 
You know what I'm saying? And so by the time someone has gotten to where, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling different about myself, I'm thinking different about myself, boom. They're out to, not not that the you know, NAAA and the other support, the ancillary support mechanisms are not good. They're great. Right. But when you've been using drugs for 10 years, you know, hardcore user, you need more than three months of treatment. Very few people, the statistical, statistically, very few people succeed with less. That's not from me. That's from statistics. Okay. Uh, Michelle wants to know, this is a great question. How come my family members don't understand my addiction? How can we get the family to understand what it's like to be an addict? That's what Michelle's asking. How come my family member doesn't understand my addiction? That's a tough one. We don't know everyone's every every family dynamic is different. But yeah. in general, generally speaking, it's hoped that if you are in a treatment environment and your family's coming, right? Coming sure. coming to see you, coming to visit you, support you, what have you, that wherever you are, um you and the program and others can educate them. Right. Um more often than not, you, the addict, are not the best person to educate them because they're, they still might be feeling stuff about it. <laughs> from what, from what you, from personal what, stuff on the table. From what you've done. <laughs> uh, so they may not be ready to hear anything from you right, uh, right now because you haven't shown anything yet. But um, hopefully, you know, the, 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 if you're in a residential program, the staff there can, can educate them on, you know, on, on it. Um, but you know what? At some point, you are going to have to educate them by by being honest about what it what it's like to what it was like to live your life as an addict and the things that you did while you were an addict. Right. Shocked faces and all. That's that's the way you end up ultimately because there's the formal education. You know what I mean? Where like let's say I'm a staff person, I might you know formally. Right. Educate yeah, them. Maybe psychologically, what's going you know, what, on? You know. Physiologically, neurologically, whatever. Right. But uh, at some point, I, the addict, I'm going to have to sit down and say, "Hey, this is who I, this is who I, I am. This is what I did. This is why I did what I did, and this is what I'm trying to become about by being here." Yeah. So, um, so she asks in a way, "How? Why don't my family members understand my addiction?" Well, mo- most people that aren't in that life don't understand it. Right. Then they ask the same question. Well, why why are you using drugs? That's true. Or why or even once you've quit, why did you? Yeah. Or why or even bigger, once you quit say drinking, is it well why can't you just have a glass of wine with dinner? I think a lot of people have experience with someone in their family who just can't quite wrap their mind around it and I think a very honest answer to her question is on some level, they they don't need to understand. The, the only person that needs to understand why you're not using anymore is you. Mm-hmm. And if they get it, great. Mm-hmm. And some of them may attempt to get it. And if they don't, okay, you did your best to explain it to them, but you know what you got to do for yourself. And that's just that. 
My mentor at Swan Lake, E.J. Hill, said it best. Better than I just said it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I, ultimately he bottom he bottom lined it. Okay, sure. And he said, when you you can be out there twenty five years clean, and say to someone, "Yeah, yeah, I've been clean twenty five years," and say, "Well, yeah, what are you talking about? What do you mean?" Oh, yeah, I, I used to use drugs, but I haven't used drugs in twenty five years. Now look at you and say, "Well, you shouldn't have been stupid enough to use drugs in the first place." Right. It's like so you're not going to get no pats on the back for that. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. So the society, the attitude from the majority of society, I'm not talking within the recovery community. In the recovery community, you're clean one day, we're giving you props. One day at a time. Mm-hmm. You, you're clean 30 years, we're giving you props. Okay? Society, what are you making such dumb decisions for? Of course. Why? Why are you picking up using in the first place? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's E.J. Hill. All right. How are we doing on time? We're good. We got about eight minutes here. Okay. Let's go to Sarah from San Rafael. Sarah, welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. <clears throat> um, my my question that I had today is I was curious um, as to I've noticed um, throughout Northern California from my personal experience that um, numerous you know different detox centers treatment centers um even from going to you know NA and A meetings there's always two to three times more men than women in the populations and i was wondering if there's any reason behind that yes okay i'm going to trying to think of how to word this <laughs> historically women have always been underrepresented in treatment and huh. and and, and in the various treatment scenes that you've described, whether it's traditional treatment or AANA, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And one of the main reasons, and I know this is going to sound raw, but it's a a truth. Um, Women have more means, Mm M-E-A-N-S, to stay out there. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. And so because of that, Women stay in their addiction longer than men because they have more, oh, a means means of kind of quote unquote fueling it or funding it, so to speak. Uh huh. And so it's as simple as that. Wow. Unfortunately. Interesting. Okay. Well, I guess that answers my give, question. <laughs> just, uh, I'm going to give you a a very huge example. Okay. In 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 in, in the old Daytop facilities in upstate New York, in the Catskill Mountains, they told 250 people. There were 190 men, 60 women. Wow. So there was three times as many men. Mm-hmm. Why were there so few women? Well, that's the answer. I already told you. Right. And it's not it's not a uh it's an unfortunate thing because when women do finally make it into treatment um there's a lot more for them to deal with. There's a lot more issues that a woman brings to the table in the treatment environment that they have to deal with um because of how long they've stayed out there, the things that they've done that allowed them to stay out there, um, et cetera. And um a lot of a lot of trauma and a lot of issues that then come mm-hmm. to the fore. So, 
It's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. Wow, that's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. Okay. There's no concerted effort to keep them out. We <laughs> <laughs> want more. I, I didn't. I didn't think there was, but uh, that's that's really interesting to hear. But thank you so much for okay. your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. So I'm not sure if there's any. Uh, there's never been for uh, as a man speaking on that subject. Sure. There, there, there's never been a comfortable way to, to explain to explain or express that. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, no. Absolutely. But we we knew what the you know what the reasons were why women were underrepresented in treatment. Um, and I mean I don't know what you can do about it. It's just the nature of the beast. Right. Yeah. No. There is not too much to do about it. So, um, even here in our treatment program, we have many yeah. more male beds than we do have female beds. Far less females to males. Exactly. So, um, and the thing is, I mean, and we get most of our clients from criminal justice, and it's and it's not that there's not women in you know in the jails, right? You know that are seeking treatment, but for some reason, even that, they don't. Um, the numbers still, in terms of the number of women that get get going to treatment from jail versus men, is still far fewer. So it's like, let's say we decide to just become an all women's program, convert all our beds to women, right? Okay we wouldn't be able to still serve the, our, the capacity that we can hold because not that many women are coming out of jail for whatever reason into treatment. Right. Where they're going, I have no idea. You know, it's, our intake director once said where they're going? Up, the, ri- up the river into prison. Uh, okay. I'm like, really? Chowchilla. Chowchilla. All right, how much time we got? Oh, we're looking at about three minutes. Okay, so I got time for one more. Let me do a written question. Oh, yeah. We can go. We can go. Pop up caller three minutes, or you. All right, let's try a call. You know, the calls are usually the, the most uncontrollable. I can control a written question. <laughs> but true. Uh, who do we got? It's, I have no idea. We, we have, right. we've gone no screening at this point. All right. Hello. Name and name and hometown, please. Name and hometown. James from Reno, Nevada. All right, James. How can we help you? All we, right. We my question got... is. What are the dangers of having a relationship early in recovery? <laughs> that's, a, that's a popular one. Uh, I just answered that question today. Oh, you did? Okay, where is it? Okay, uh, should I think of a different question? No, no, no. Okay. James? Yes. The answer to that question, you said early in recovery, right? Yes, sir. Because the focus should be on you and you alone. Okay. Um, yeah. Is there like any specific dangers that come along with it? Yeah. If you if you involve yourself or if you are early in your recovery and you involve yourself in a relationship, the focus comes off of you, and the, and automatically has to go on or be shared with another person. And so you have to make sure you get to a point in your recovery where you have dealt with you, you are square with you, you are you you've been resurrected, you're you're now straight, or at least eighty five percent straight, okay? Before you're then ready to take someone else on into your world, you know what I'm saying? Yes. 
because people fall big time behind their inability to deal with relationships. So we got to be careful. Okay? That's so right. That's right. We want them in their early days to focus on you. Okay? Focus on you. All right. Thank you. That's my answer. And James, Thank James, you. you there? Yes, sir. Before we let you off, being that you're from Reno, Nevada, are you a fan of Keno? I had to ask. You know, actually, back in the day, my grandfather used to take me uh, to the casinos. We'd have breakfast, and he'd let me play a Keno game, and I won Kino one time. Keno breakfast all day. I love it. That is one of my favorite things to do when in Reno is go out to breakfast, and the waitress brings the Keno cards, and you're picking numbers, baby. That's right, right. That's no right. Gambling. No, no, no gambling on OCG radio. All right, James. Well done, James. All right, thanks, James. Bringing the uh, slot machines into. Hey, it started in Reno. It's made its way into Vegas, man. Kino is great. All right, I think we're on our clock. We are on the clock, yeah, about 20 seconds left, which is just enough time to thank everybody out there who is listening and supporting us. Thank all of the callers for calling in, uh, asking good questions, being open and honest. Um, A thank you to our guest interviewer today as well, Ray. Uh, That was completely awesome. We thank you for your time, and uh, we hope that everybody has a good rest of the week and enjoys their weekend, and we will see you guys next Tuesday.
our show for this evening thank you for listening be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4pm Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio like us friend us and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCG CA and on Twitter at OCG CA you can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.